You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Uh, some guests this morning. Uh, Tony Morita, who's here on the front row, who will be here in just a second, as well as his wife, Kimberly Morita. And two of their kids are here this morning uh, to serve us, uh, both leading us in music as well as in uh, the word. I'm going to brag a little bit about Tony. I could brag a little bit about Kimberly, but I'm going to uh, uh, just focus on Tony here for a second. He's, he's, uh, he's the author of uh, a ton of books. You can Google him, something like 10 or 15 books. He is the dean and professor at Grimke Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. He's also on the board of the Gospel Coalition and the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Uh, as mentioned, he is the pastor of Imago Day Church, which is around a thousand people or so now, uh, after uh, many years of faithful ministry and church planting there in Raleigh. And most importantly, he is married to Kimberly uh, here that is uh, on stage leading us in song this morning. They have five children, all adopted by the grace of God, uh, uh, James, Angela, Jana, Victoria, and Joshua. And so uh, Wesley will lead us in prayer and we'll be on our way. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you're good to us in so many ways. Uh, God, we think about your goodness in the gospel uh, that you sent your son for us, Lord, uh, that we base our lives not on our own performance or our own good deeds, but on what you have accomplished for us, Jesus, on the cross. And because of that today, we come and rejoice in the good things that you've put into our lives, particularly the people uh, that you've put into our lives, Lord. And we think about Tony and Kimberly. We think about their family. Uh, we think about not only what a pastor he is to Ben and I uh, and many in this room who have been impacted by him, Lord, but uh, the, the father that he is, the husband that he is, Lord, um, God, the man of God that he is, the friend uh, that he is, Lord, we are uh, so thankful, uh, Lord, to, to know him in so many different ways and to be able to be encouraged, Lord, and uh, edified, Lord, in our own callings and, and walk here at King's Church, Lord. Uh, we also thank you for Kimberly and Tony and for the work that they have done around the world spreading the gospel, Lord, and today we are humbled uh, to have them in our presence, Lord. We also just are reminded by, by the book of Philippians how Paul talks about uh, partnerships in the gospel, Lord, and how we look towards Tony and Kim and Imago Day and what a great partnership they They've been with us here at King's Church, Lord. Uh, we are in debt so much to the, the grace of God through this church and this family and how they've served us, how they've loved us, how they've supported us, Lord. And everything that we uh, see happening today through the grace of God at King's Church, Lord, uh, there's a part of that that we owe a, a, a debt of gratitude to, to IDC, Lord to that family, uh, to Tony and Kim, and all that they've done for us. And so, Lord, we're thankful today to have them in our presence. We're thankful to call them friends, mentors. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, to have them today to lead uh, us in worship. And so would you be with us today, and would you be honored, Jesus? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. It's a great joy uh, to be with you. Uh, we rejoice in all that uh, God is doing uh, through uh, King's Church uh, recently gave a report uh, to our church about this church, and um, it just incited uh, a bunch of applause. And so uh, know that uh, you are being cheered on uh, by a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I remember uh, walking with uh, 
Pastor Ben through uh, the church planting process, and we took a couple trips to Buffalo as he was considering planting uh, in his hometown, and I'm, I'm glad he didn't do that as much as Buffalo needs good churches too. Um, I, I'm glad that we're here in uh, D.C. and that there is a healthy, vibrant church here in this influential city, and I selfishly am glad because I love the Nationals uh, and uh, plan on watching them lose three in a row later today. So... Um, yeah, uh, the, the Instagram post from your church is my favorite post uh, every week, the, the weekend review. I can't wait to see that uh, every week. Our Instagram's terrible in our church, and uh, I just said, Ben, can I make the weekend review this week? That's all I want, man. Um, so we'll see about that. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, just want to bring you a, a word of uh, encouragement in the gospel. Um, we went through Romans a few years ago as a church, and if you've been around the Bible much, you know that it is uh, a very significant letter. Uh, many would say the most important letter that Paul uh, wrote, some 16 chapters uh, unpacking the good news of the gospel. Some pastors spend years uh, teaching through Romans. We decided uh, not to take the Hotel California approach where you check in but never leave, uh, but instead uh, managed to get uh, through the book in about nine months. Uh, but as I told our church, uh, even though we're finishing a sermon series, it doesn't mean we're finished with Romans. Uh, Romans certainly isn't finished with me. Uh, it will be the rest of my life that I spend pondering the privileges of the gospel in this letter. And I remember as a young college student uh, studying Romans for the first time. I went to college on a baseball scholarship at a small school in Kentucky uh, and became a Christian as a sophomore. I was a shortstop, and my second baseman uh, led me to faith in Christ. He was a relentless witness who would uh, share the gospel with everyone, including the opposing team as they would get to second base. Uh, I, I sometimes tell him that, uh, you know, I think the, the guys went for three just so they didn't have to hear your sermon. Um, and uh, Stephen uh, just uh, shared the gospel with me over and over and over again, and I was interested in uh, partying, and I was interested in uh, playing sports, and that was about it. But the Lord uh, rescued me, changed me, uh, and I began to get in every Bible study that I could on campus. And I remember reading the book of Romans, being in a study, not knowing half of what Paul was talking about, uh, but it lit me on fire. Uh, and today I hope to encourage you uh, in it. When people understand the message of Romans, big things happen. Martin Luther, the German reformer, uh, attributes his conversion to uh, his experience as he came to grips with Romans 117. Uh, Luther said prior to understanding its meaning that it made him hate God as he considered the, the righteousness of God was not something that he appreciated but something that he feared. And then he realized that in the gospel the message is that there is a righteousness given to us that comes from outside ourselves and that we can be declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And he said it was as though the gateway to paradise opened to him and caused him to dance in the streets as he understood the message of this book. Or John Wesley, who felt as he was hearing the preface to Martin Luther's commentary being read aloud, that his heart was strangely warmed as he understood the content of it. Or Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430, the early church father from North Africa, who, when he was 32 years old, uh, heard a, a bunch of uh, kids singing outside, he says, a very dramatic story of his conversion, saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he goes outside and he finds a Bible and he says to God, uh, whatever I open to first is going to be your word to me. 
which I, I don't really recommend that approach. Uh, uh, fortunately, it wasn't Judas hung himself or something. Uh, in, instead, it was, it was uh, Romans chapter 13 of, of casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And Augustine, that 32-year-old man who uh, his mother prayed for him for years, uh, became a giant in uh, Christian history. And those stories and more illustrate really the thesis statement of the book of Romans, which is found in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. And it's important for us to be reminded of that today, that the gospel still works. Uh, the gospel still changes lives in influential cities like Rome and in like Washington, D.C. It still works. Now, many understand the book of Romans to be primarily about individual salvation, and though much of the letter involves that focus, it's also about how the gospel should, uh, should shape our community and our ethics, how it really should shape our very lives. Uh, Michael Byrd, an Australian theologian, uh, says that what Paul is doing in Romans is gospelizing the Romans. Uh, just, he says, as you would tenderize meat so that the whole piece of meat becomes tender. So Paul wants the Christian's whole life to reflect the realities that the gospel announces. So yes, the gospel brings us to salvation, but it also should shape our very lives. It should shape our, our community and our ethics. Now in the passage that was just read, Romans 8, 31 to 39, I picked this text because here Paul is giving a bit of summary of some of the great themes in this letter. And he does that before he launches into a new section of the book of Romans. And it's easy to outline uh, what we're going to look at today. Uh, I don't have any slides for you. Ben has given you enough to digest today in the announcement times. Uh, but uh, we do have the text. Uh, in you were doing some great work over here, brother. Uh, <laughs> And they, they all come around this, uh, the, the, uh, the who questions uh, that Paul raises in this uh, portion of Scripture. Verses 31 and 32, uh, who is against us? And in each of these four questions, uh, Paul uh, assumes that the answer that uh, the Romans would give is that uh, the answer would be nobody. So who can be against us? Ultimately, nobody. Verse 33, the second question, who shall bring a charge against us? Ultimately, nobody. Question three, who is to condemn us? Ultimately, no one. Who shall separate us is the fourth question. Nobody. So I call this, uh, as one who lived in New Orleans for about eight years, Paul's who dat section uh, in the book of Romans. If you're familiar with the New Orleans Saints, they have that cheer, who dat say going to beat them saints, uh, which is usually everybody. But in this case, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's nobody. Uh, who's going to beat the saints? Who is going to come against the saints? Ultimately, Nobody. So let's look at those four questions briefly this morning. Who can be against us? Paul has a question that precedes uh, this question in, in verse 31 when he says, what then shall we say to these things? And these things I, it could uh, refer to uh, what's been said up to this point in Romans chapter 8. And Paul has said a lot. If you're not familiar with the Bible, a lot of people call Romans 8 uh, the great eight because it's such a, a packed section of gospel glory. And it could be that Paul is trying to um, summarize or reflect back on just the first 30 verses of Romans 8. But most scholars agree that because a new section is beginning in chapter 9 through 11, Paul really is asking the question about the first eight chapters of Romans. What shall we say to these things? And the, the test question then that Paul is, is raising is how do you summarize the first eight chapters of Romans? And if you're not familiar with the first eight chapters, it's my privilege to summarize them for you. In chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Paul speaks to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. 
and speaks about their, their judgment because of their idolatry and their sin against God. Chapter 2, he speaks about God's just judgment on uh, Jewish unbelief. Uh, and then in chapter 3, he includes both and, and says all y'all are, are under uh, condemnation. But then there's a great pivot in Romans 3.21. God has done something. He has intervened by sending forth Christ to be our substitute, to die in our place for our sins, and by faith in him we can be declared justified before God. And Paul says in chapter 4, Abraham is an example of this. He is the one who, who put his faith in God and was counted righteousness, not, counted righteous not because of his works, but because God credited to him righteousness. He believed by faith. And in chapter 5, he teases out some of the benefits of justification by faith, saying that we have peace with God. We now have access to God. Uh, we have been reconciled to God. In chapter 6, he talks about life in the Spirit that we now enjoy as people who are in Christ, and how one day we will be delivered at the end of chapter 7 from this body of death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins chapter 8, verse 1, by saying that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say that we had been adopted by God, that the Spirit intercedes for us, that all things are working together for our good, and that God is, is, is guaranteed to take his people to glory. All of that leads into Romans 8.31, and Paul says, what do we say to these things? How do we summarize this? And Paul gives his answer in, in the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, how we would summarize Romans chapter eight or ch chapters eight, uh, one to eight, is simply this: God is for us. God is for us. Now you can't let your circumstances tell you otherwise. You you cannot let pain and hardship in this life deceive you. Discouraged saint, God is for you, even when we're in the valley. We go back to the good news of Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-one. And we embrace this. And I'm quite aware this is a dangerous statement as many religious fanatics around the world say that their God is also for them. And we would say that they're wrong. But we don't want to, despite that abuse, not embrace this as a glorious truth for we who are Christians. The God who calls, justifies, and glorifies sinners is for us. Right? After all that has been said in the book of Romans, it would be wrong to say anything less than this. God is for us. All the powers of hell themselves could set themselves against us, but ultimately they cannot prevail because God is on our side. He is for us. And it's hard to imagine this morning anything greater than this truth. Now the question arises, how do we know this to be true? How do we know God is for us? Many people can say that. And it sounds great, but it sounds a bit like wishful thinking. Well, verse 32 comes after verse 31, and it gives us a great deal of clarity and certainty on this matter because Paul goes on to say in verse 32, here's how we know that God is for us. Something has actually happened in space, time, and history to prove once and for all God is for us, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? What a beautiful verse, verse 32, is this is the promise of promises. The cross assures us of God's ongoing love and care for us. Christ's work for us in the past assures us of God's continued grace toward us 
in the present and in the future. He did not spare his own son. That has echoes of the story of Abraham, whose son was spared. But God the Father did not spare his own beloved son, but he gave him up for us all. The supreme act of love gave him up for us. This indicates that that substitution was taking place. Sacrifice was taking place. And God did so, Paul says, graciously. How will he not graciously with him give us all things? Our God does not give with a grudging hand. He gives lavishly. He gives graciously. And he says, if he would do that, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And you see how the argument here is running from the greater to the lesser. If God will do the big thing, namely give up his own beloved son, we're going to be all right. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Now, this doesn't mean all things that we've ever wanted. This, this has salvation in view. If he's going to give Christ for us, he's not now going to abandon us. He's not going to leave us. He didn't redeem us to leave us. He redeemed us to conform us and to bring us to our destination, to bring us to final glory. And so we look back at the cross of Jesus Christ, and it actually gives us great peace and comfort about Monday morning and this, this coming week. And so the cross is not simply something that we, we die on when we, when we are about to, to die trusting in Christ, but it's also the great truth we live on, that he gave his own son. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? The argument of the greater to the lesser is, it's kind of like, you know, if, if my wife and I decide to take our five kids to Disney World and, and we spend, you know, $4,000 uh, down there to <laughs> fly and get tickets uh, in, in hotels. And just imagine I'm driving our Suburban to, uh, to Disney World and, and we're going to one of the theme parks and it, it says parking $50. And if I look over to Kimberly and I'm like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm drawing the line, you know, like... Uh, we can park at our hotel. We'll walk three or four miles. It's not that big a deal. Uh, she's going to say, we have spent $4,000 uh, on this trip. Uh, we're going to spend the 50 bucks for parking. And if God has already made the big purchase, he's already done the big thing, he's going to take care of our parking. How do we know God is for us? Something has happened. The cross of Jesus Christ and what has taken place there is giving us great assurance right now in what he's doing in our lives. The second question, which I won't spend as much time on, is who shall bring the, any charge against us? Verse 33. Obviously, in these questions, people can bring charges against us, and they will. People can accuse us, and they will. People will be opposed to us. But Paul is speaking in the realms of, of ultimate here. And he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, the book of Romans, as I've already mentioned, is largely concerned with this question of how to be right with God. That's the meaning of justification, how to be right before God. And Paul has spoken of the need for it. He's spoken of the means by which we attain it. It's by faith alone. And now he speaks of the one who gives it. It is God who justifies. So who can bring a charge against us? Well, he says, if God, the Almighty, has justified you, then that verdict cannot be overthrown. You cannot go higher than God. When the omnipotent, righteous judge of all the earth says not guilty, 
declared righteous, that verdict cannot be overthrown. And this is the good news of the book of Romans. We're not justified on the basis of our morality, as good as morality is. We're not justified on the basis of religious ritual, as important as they can be. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that gives us the peace we need with God and the peace that surpasses all human understanding. And so, my friends, we rejoice today in this good news. And what Paul is giving us here is great reason, again, to find assurance, to find security in Christ. You know, it's kind of like knowing the difference between uh, when, you, when you fly somewhere, uh, someone who has a, has a standby ticket and someone who has a confirmed ticket. If you, if you have a confirmed ticket, you're relaxing. But if you have a standby, you see these people on the phone talking to their family and friends. I don't know if I'm going to be on the flight or not. I'm looking to see if my name's going to pop up on the screen high enough so I can get awarded a seat. But if you are in Christ, you have a confirmed ticket, right? We're not on standby. And the way we get this security, again, is by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Ultimately, it is God who justifies And if he has done that, then we have great reason today to rejoice. As the hymn says, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Praise be to God, the one who justifies the ungodly and gives us this security. Well, Paul adds to that question, verse 34, who is to condemn us? It's a similar question to the second one. Only this time he answers it with more of a a Christ-centered answer than a God-centered answer when he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, as the New Testament teaches us, sometimes our own hearts will try to condemn us. Satan is called the accuser, and he will try to uh, wreak havoc on our spiritual lives. We will have critics and enemies and dark forces of evil that will try to condemn us, but ultimately they cannot prevail because Jesus Christ is, has already been condemned in place of us. Who is to condemn? Not Jesus. He is the one who has rescued us from condemnation. He's the one that's given us the great hope of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is powerful. This This is not let me pay God back for my past. No, this is let me just rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who has paid it all for me. Think about this is Paul, one who attacked Christians, wanted to kill Christians. He is the one who writes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not let me pay God back for all of my past deeds that were so wicked. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Christ. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says this, this idea of no condemnation is the foundation for Christian joy. This is why we sing today because of what Jesus has done for us. So many hymns come to mind. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Or the old one, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross and I'll bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And this is one of the distinguishing marks of Christians compared to other religions is that we sing. And while some may sing, they don't sing like we sing. And we sing because we've been liberated. And liberated people sing. 
You see, oppression that comes in the form of religion does not lead people to joyful song. Oppression doesn't inspire praise. Grace inspires praise. Freedom inspires praise. Some works-based righteousness of trying to earn your way to heaven doesn't give you the freedom and joy uh, to, to praise. But being forgiven by God, knowing that there is no condemnation, that fuels praise. And that gives us great peace as well. I've always been struck by reading the book of Acts. I know you guys are going through Acts. In Acts chapter 12, Peter's asleep in prison. He's sleeping so hard they have to send an angel to wake him up. And, and then in Acts 16, Paul is singing in prison. So you have two wonderful scenes here of one being asleep in prison and one singing in prison. And though they are chained up, their hearts are free. Because the gospel will give you peace and the gospel will give you a song. It lets you sleep and it lets you sing. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He was raised, Paul says, at the end of chapter 4 of Romans, for our justification. His resurrection has assured us of our resurrection. Pastor Tim Keller says, I know a woman with a chronic illness, and you occasionally ask her, how, how are you feeling? Does it hurt? Are you in a lot of pain? And he says she will often respond by saying, nothing that the resurrection won't cure. I told our church, when we get these new bodies, I'm going to get some bangs. I'm going to be in the band. It's going to be glorious. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the Father's right hand. He occupies the highest seat of authority and honor. And after making perfect atonement, he sat down at the Father's right hand. And now Paul says he is interceding for us. Think about that. Jesus is still working on our behalf. He continues to love us. He continues to serve us. He's our high priest. He's not condemning us. He's interceding for us. McShane, the old Scottish pastor, said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. <laughs> a few things are more encouraging th than to know that I am the subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. And what Paul is going to great pains to tell us is that Jesus is more committed to us than we are to him. When we stumble, when we fumble, and we will, he is praying fervently and successfully. He will hold us fast. And we praise his name for that. We rest in his grace. Question number four, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now you notice that Paul gives twice the amount of attention to this fourth question as he does to the other three. I will not do that, but it is worth pointing out that the answer is twice as long and, you know, you look at Paul here and you're like, Paul, we, we get it by now. The answer is nobody. And Paul could just say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Chapter 9. But he, he spends all these verses poetically explaining to us the answer, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. As one writer says, he, he puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical metal to convince us that Christ loves us. And I think there's a lesson here that, that Paul knows. It's one thing to know this in our minds, but it's another thing to feel it in our hearts. He's not just transferring information. He's, he's preaching. He's going after affections. He's going after hearts. 
And it's possible to, to know doctrinal truth but be a very cold individual. And so one of the things that Paul is, is showing us here is, is, is the beauty of, of poetry, of the beauty of language, of the beauty of stirring up carefully one's affections by meditating on, on these truths. And so he gives us some possible candidates of things that might separate us and things that we might feel are separating us from the love of Christ, like tribulation. If you're going through pressure or trouble and you're in pressure, uh, you're, you're, you're in a, a stressful situation, you may wonder, does Christ still love me or distress, a similar word. Or persecution. There was a real possibility in the early church. It's a possibility around the world today. In a, a season of persecution, have I been separated from Christ's love? Or if I don't have the basic necessities of famine, he mentions, and nakedness, or if I'm in a real dangerous situation, or I'm being threatened with my life, sword. All of these possible separators Paul brings up. And then he drops in, as he often does, kind of a verse out of nowhere from Psalm 44, which is a psalm about the, the suffering of God's people. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And basically, I think Paul brings this verse in to say that suffering is par for the course for the Christian. It's a normal part of this, this experience in life. And so don't be surprised by it. His love for you is sure but so are troubles. They're sure too. But through the trials, through the troubles, verse 37, he gives this triumphant exclamation and answers his question saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You notice that, that God doesn't always take us out of these things. It's in all these things. You actually may go through the challenges previously mentioned. You may Fear for your life. You may struggle with finding daily necessities. You may face persecution. But it is in all these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Literally, you are a super conqueror. And you say, what is that? Well, it's, that's a great question. They go, if you're a conqueror, what's a super conqueror? And I think Paul here is saying more than we're able to endure this, the trials of life. He's actually saying something better than that, is that these trials are actually working for our good, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. We are victors who are working our way through the trials of this life, knowing that Jesus has us, he's using us, he's conforming us to his image, and he is promising us glory when the suffering is no more. And it's through him, it's not a baseless triumphalism here. All I do is win, win, win. It, it, is a, it is a Christ-centered triumph. It is through him that we are more than conquerors who loved us. Notice the past tense. This is a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.20. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Again, a look to the past at the cross gives us confidence in the present and the future. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it's in all these things. And so Paul says, to finish it off in 38 and 39, I am convinced, or I am persuaded, and he wants us to be persuaded that none of these things can separate us from his love, neither death nor life. So nothing in the realm of this existence, nor angels nor rulers, anything in the spiritual realm, nor powers, that is dark powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, whatever you might think of or imagine, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you notice that all of the blessings we've just mentioned, we first experience them, we hold this out to those who are not yet Christians, we experience them by being in Christ Jesus. These blessings flow to us through our union with Jesus Christ. Nothing will separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So church, we have quite a message to proclaim. We have wonderful promises to embrace today. God is for us. Who can be against us? Allow these truths to lead you to worship. Allow them to fill your affections afresh for love for Jesus Christ. Allow them to lift you from despair if you're in a season of despair. What, what can bring a Christian to despair? Paul mentions them there in verses 33 and following. Sin, suffering, death. And if sin is bringing us to despair, we go back and remember that God's verdict has been pronounced over us. God hasn't abandoned us. If suffering is bringing us to despair, we remember from this text that we are still in the grip of God's grace in all these things. If death is bringing us to despair, we remember from verse 38 that not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Allow these truths to unite your, your faith community. I didn't really emphasize this, but you, you, it's interesting as you look at the plural language if God is for, not me, though that's true, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? You see, it is the gospel that unites us as a faith community. We are brothers and sisters. And if we are brothers and sisters, that is a miracle. You know, sometimes we just use that language in the church when we forget people's names. Right. Hey, brother, I do that for a living. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, when, when uh, you know, a guy would ask the girl out at campus ministry and she didn't want to go out with him, she would say, I like you like a brother. It's a very delicate Christian-y way to say no. Uh, but if we really are brothers and sisters, oh, that's a wonderful thing, man. Only God has done that. And allow these truths to fuel your mission here in the city. To know that God is for you. That he's with you. You can endure almost anything with the promises of Romans chapter 8. And that's where this whole letter goes. It's, you come to find out at the end of Romans, like a missionary support letter, as Paul wants to unite these churches, very diverse congregation, Jew, made up of Jew and Gentile, weaker and stronger brother, as he calls them, so that they can support his mission to Spain, so Paul can preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached yet. And he builds all of it with chapter after chapter of rich gospel truth and allow these truths, church, to fuel your mission here in the city. May God give King's Church years and years and years of faithfulness. Even as, you know, the transient city that you're in, the impact you can make while you're here and as new people come in, may the Lord continue to bless your church and bless your witness. I just marvel at it, man. I'm in a position now where the teacher has become the student. 
has been in Wesley's share, I'm taking notes. And I just pray you would stay centered on the gospel in your own hearts, in your own lives, in this church. May the Lord use you greatly for his glory. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.